Well, hello again, Fathoms listeners. Thanks for being with us for another episode of Fathoms and Enneagram podcast. And today we have a return guest, which we're all very excited about, Dr. B. Yes. Dr. B, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. It's always fun to see my Fathoms family friends. (laughs) This topic is something that you and I have talked about multiple times and uh, it kind of came up in one of our conversations and it's like, wow, no, that feels like it needs to be talked about. This victim mentality that kind of seems to be pervading our culture. So I think what we want to do, and we're doing a lot of this, a lot of this sort of thing this season is defining. Let's let's get clear on the terms that we're using. So we're using them correctly and we're not um, and we're using them with nuance and honor. So I'd love for mm-hmm. us to start with victimhood, the the identity, the the story, all that sort of thing. How do you personally, uh, when you talk about victimhood, how do you define that? So I've thought a lot about it since our la- since our conversation before, and victimhood is pervasive in our culture at the moment. And I think that part of the reason that victimhood is so pervasive is because we are struggling with exactly what your podcast is about, which is individuality, mutuality, and unity. So people are in the process of separating themselves out from each other. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways we do that is we we acknowledge our difference. Mm-hmm. And potentially that difference can be something challenging, harmful, difficult, which can then lead us into victimhood, which can then lead us into oh yeah, that, that's your story, but this is my story. And then this is my story. So if we think about victims, that means something harmful happened to you. You are a victim. You are a, something harmful happened to you. There's no shame, no, like that, something terrible has happened to everyone at some point on some level. However, it becomes a problem when it's a state or when it's a trait rather than a state, Mm. a state of victimhood means something bad happened to me. Like I am a victim of some of harm. It's temporary. A trait becomes, I am a victim of the universe because something bad happened to me. And now it's become part of my identity and it's permanent becomes part of my personhood or my individuality. It's how I define myself as a victim. So that was one of the things that really I've been thinking a lot about in terms of victim, because we don't want to shame people for being a victim of a, of a, I mean, bad things happen and and people are victimized on, you know, and so we don't want to say that it's not okay to have a, have something bad happen to you. We just have to have it we also have to have a way out of it. That's how I was thinking just in the psych world of state versus trait, you Mm. know, something that becomes you versus something that happens to you. Yeah. Dr. B, uh, I'm wondering, I think that's a profound distinction to make between, you know, state and trait. I'm wondering if in your work, if you could maybe provide an example or two to help kind of highlight that distinction and maybe a follow-up then would be, why are we in this place where it seems to be uh, more and more of a trait, right? <laughs> than, yeah. than it should be, right? Sure. I think that's because we don't understand the de- defining differences between trait versus state. Okay. Our identity is built on traits, right? And so if in order to differentiate who we are, from somebody else requires us to make our victimhood a trait or a part of who we are. We incur we we sell this in the media all the time. It's on Facebook, it's on Instagram, it's in social media everywhere. Oh, tell me your trauma. Hello, I'm in the trauma business. Mm-hmm. But more than that, I'm in the resilience business. I'm about getting yeah. out of the trauma, right? Yeah. Yeah. So What we have to recognize is, and we have to get people to grab a hold of, is that victimhood is a state of being, but we haven't taught people how to 
how to do that. We haven't taught them how to have a have a traumatic experience and then instead of weaving it into this part of who they are that's sort of a permanent negative or having them find a way to take, you know, to take the nuggets from the gems, the lessons learned, and then move into a different, a different space. I do have an example though, if yes. you want me to share. Okay. So great. So I'm gonna so I'll tell you what I was thinking about this in in a really generalized way. And there's there's we can each play a different role in this in this situation or example. When we see an unhoused person, which we all do, right? Mm-hmm. We see people who are unhoused all the time who struggle with mental illness or potentially not a mental illness, but a mental health struggle mm-hmm. because they're two different things and people can be unhoused for either reason. They have a diagnosis or they have something has brought them to a place where they've lost their resources and they're struggling with mental health anxiety, depression, resources, stress. A mental illness would be a trait, right? It's a diagnosis. It comes with your constitution, your genetics. Something happened, maybe hit up with some uh, trauma and it becomes activated and you have a heavy hitting diagnosis of something. I'll name some. I'll name some of those. Um, A person may be diagnosed with schizophrenia, a person may be diagnosed with bipolar, a person may be diagnosed with diet, I'm going to even say diabetes or high blood pressure or because really our mental health diagnoses really any different than physical diagnoses Mm -hmm. in my world. I don't think so. And then a state of mental health struggle would be poverty creates a lot of stress or losing the losing your job. A, pan- a global pandemic could cause some hey. major stress. Could. Yeah, Isolation, <laughs> parenting, new to parenting, a child with special needs or something happening at school. But when we see a person who's unhoused on the street, alone, struggling, I think about Abram's definition of, of unity and I'll say it diversity maintained and and, and protected by love all together now oh, hey. <laughs> all right abram's just so I know, happy right now and I know. he's not entirely sure why yeah i, I do love i do love that definition as well but i want to say that when i see a person who's unhoused on the street struggling isolated alone with hmm. potentially a trait mental ill you know mental illness we failed at unity. Mm, sure. I failed at unity. You failed at unity. We failed at mu- unity as a community. Come Because we know <laughs> they have no business. We have no business walking by somebody like that who's so vulnerable. Mm. And it's no different than walking past a child a little tiny vulnerable child who is alone and needs love and protection and a mature adult to manage the boundaries of that child's life and to ensure that they get the support that they need Mm -hmm. in order to grow into an adult who can manage their life regardless of the states and the traits that come along with Mm -hmm. them. Resilience. I'm going to say it, and you can you can put it in your quote show okay. next time. <laughs> yeah. Okay, perfect. Resilience yes. is not random. We know exactly how to do it. Yes. So we have no excuse. There was a time in history when we could say, "Oh, you know, resilience. It's just, it's, just, it's the ability to overcome adversity. You got You're it, lucky or you, you don't. Can. <laughs> you got it, or you don't. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. We know it." We know how to, we are, we are smart. We know how to handle resiliency. There's no excuse to ignore our ability to embrace unity or community. And that's what we all want. Like we all want community at that level, but we get stuck in, I think the individuality 
Yeah, we do because yeah. we all have different ideas as separate communities about what moving through victimhood looks like, right? We're all hearing this word and responding to it in different ways. And I so appreciate that you equate someone who's unhoused, like our response to them can can be as gentle and as loving as seeing a child in need. Because for me, I, I feel like this is where I notice these different approaches to this idea of victimhood, where we sort of we see someone in a situation that maybe we feel like we have the tools and resources, you know, to be resilient through that. And then we sort of place that expectation on them. And then there, there becomes this sort of condescension. And that is just such, such a block for us in the way of unity. So I, I just wondered along those lines, if you could help us along those lines of com- uh, compassionately seeing others, is there better language maybe that we can use to sort of bridge that gap between how we're all responding to this word victim differently? Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm thinking, um, I don't think the person who's on the street necessarily unhoused and living in in that situation necessarily views themselves as a victim. Mm -hmm. What I think that's so important that you just said is the condescension that comes with looking at another person and making a judgment about their circumstance Mm -hmm. based on our own experience or our own belief system. Mm -hmm. Because then we have just now, we have just now ignored diversity. Mm -hmm. We have just now erased the importance of neurodivergence and experience Mm -hmm. of every person on the planet. And when we do that, we can never get to community. And I think that we're moving in this direction. Like we have lived historically for the individual. But I think that we're coming to a place where sort of collective, the collective unconscious is is craving that togetherness, right? And the commitment to each other, whether we know each other or not. Like I see somebody on the street and I may not know them, but nothing about that experience ever makes me want to say, you should get a job, Mm. (laughs) you know, Mm. like if I'm not willing to hire somebody from that circuit, like in that situation, or I don't know, I think because I work with people who are highly vulnerable and I also see the resources for mental health in the world, not ever trickle down to that person. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. They just never get into the hands without another person being attached to them, just like you would a parent and a child holding their hand and saying, you know what, I need to advocate for this person to make sure that what they need, they get Mm -hmm. because that's what that money is allocated for. Right. And that Mm -hmm. money, ultimately, if we use resources to help people who are struggling in a lot of different ways, it makes everybody's life better. That's what's hard for, I think, people to see is to step back and look away a little, you know, get a little bit of distance from everything and realize it's really not all about you. (laughs) It's really not about you at all. It's, It's about all of us. You've stunned me, and you've stunned me into silence, Doctor B. Um, <laughs> well, I I did laugh today. I was thinking, gosh, they're all so thoughtful and in, you know, reflective, and I'm like a friggin' bull in a china shop. <laughs> I'm just like, get your shit together and help people. <laughs> no, we well, that's that's our our tendency is to not focus on that all the time so we need you know we need I that. love your energy so i see i see the label of victimhood victim tossed around a lot and at least in the us right now the duality is basically if you claim you're a victim 
then you aren't taking responsibility for yourself. You're just succumbing to the situation and, and being tread upon. And then I see the other side that is owning the ways in which uh, life is hard and, and affects you deeply. But then that becomes a sort of sometimes an excuse to not do hard work, not to, not to get up in the morning. And, and so like somehow finding the, the, the balance between those two because, yeah, sometimes it's hard to get up in the morning. Mm. And I want to deeply acknowledge how difficult it is sometimes, even for me. Especially for you. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that requires you to do something in the morning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, just your th- general thoughts on that, on how, how do we better find that middle ground and, and honor those and also see how that label can victimize, it can't, can limit us. Well, I think we probably need to just, and, and it's going to take a minute to get away from the word victim in and of itself, because a victim as a word probably is problematic. Like I'm just thinking as I'm listening to this, that you don't want to be a victim ever. And you certainly don't want to stay a victim permanently. Right. But if victiming becoming a victim of something elevates your attention getting in some way, then everybody's driven to find how they're a victim of any circumstances, whether it's a childhood trauma or, you know, a crime or something, whatever their victim experience is. So I think that victim being a victim, really, we have to we have to conceptualize it as I've been harmed. I've been hurt. Something bad happened to me. It shouldn't have happened to me. And somebody else was the cause of that harm, right? Because you're generally not a victim of yourself unless, unless you hang on to the victim identity or the victimhood and then you continue to use that and that becomes perpetually harmful to yourself because now you're you're victimizing yourself over and over again basically because you're not allowing for that harm to be, and I'm not going to say healed because I don't believe all harm can be healed. I think that it can be integrated mm-hmm. in a healthy way, but I do, I know that harm is not always healed mm-hmm. and adversity is not always, we're not able to always overcome adversity. But when somebody is able to, to face their harm, with support, I would say with support of people who love them, with professional help, with medication, with whatever it is that somebody needs in order to face that experience of harm or victim experience, that's taking responsibility for it and moving into a different direction. And then it then we move it away from the category of it defining it it's not a differentiator between us right we're not differentiating between hey lindsay what's your trauma compared right, to my right. trauma or oh that happened to you well this happened to me mm-hmm. and oh my gosh that happened to drew and that happened you know we're always one upping each other on harms that happen to us and yet life is full of events good and mm-hmm. bad that happen to people all the time. So it's never going to be who wins the victim race. Like sometimes you're ahead and sometimes you're behind. And really, where do you want to be? I want to be like, I want to lose the victim race. Like (laughs) I want to be out of the race. (laughs) That's a lowest score wins. Yeah. Yeah, The lowest score wins. (laughs) And, but, but the lowest score, then that also adds a responsibility to your plate that says, you know what? I need to help somebody else because I want my community to be yeah. strong. You know, there, there's no question that people are born 
in different places at different times of different characteristics of their identity that set them ahead or behind instantaneously as they hit the earth, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we know that, we don't need to feel guilty about it, you know? We don't have to feel bad, apologize, or any of those things. We need to own it, acknowledge it, and then just say, okay, if I have an opportunity, how do I put my hand out to somebody and pull them along with me? Yeah. Because I have some privilege in this in this arena. And our power and our privilege live in all sorts of different places. So sometimes... Yeah. I'm the one who can reach my hand out and pull somebody along with me. But there are other times where other somebody else reaches their hand out to me. And so when we recognize that this, this concept of victim is ever changing, it's, it's constantly changing, then when you experience a person who lives in the perpetual story of victim, then we're saying they, they may be struggling with a mental health crisis, mm-hmm. right? Or a mental health, mm-hmm. I don't know if crisis is the right word, or I'm not going to say a mental health diagnosis or anything like that, but they have to, like, not being able to let, not being able to move through something is a, men- I'm going to call it a mental health alert. That's what I want to mm-hmm. call it. A mental health alert. Okay, my friend has come over and talked to me for the last year and a half about the exact same harm that she feels victimized by. Hmm. And we're no further down the road. This is not real, but if it were. Okay, that's a mental health alert to me that you know what? We have to do we we have to find a way to help this person make a a you know, think about a chiropractic shift. An adjustment, you you know, an adjustment so they can move into a different space. And if we don't accept victimhood culturally as as a beneficial way to identify, then we're then we're going to be better off. But we almost have to go through. I think, Lindsay, you talked about this in a different episode. We have to mature through some of this. Right? Like victimhood is in its babyhood. Yeah. The first phase of that is this kind of rattling around with, I'm a victim or yeah. not. You know, we can't get to the next yeah. step. But as we then start to understand it more, we can then maturely manage and look at the meaning behind yeah. it. But ultimately, we're, we're striving for resilience. And it mm-hmm. starts at the beginning of life. And if we systemically build resilience into our culture, into into childhood, then when people at other periods of their life experience harm or trauma, we know how to activate resilience in order to overcome and help people move through their trauma or harm. I hear you. I hear you talking about the importance of resilience and the stuckness of victimhood. And I'm wondering about people. I don't want to neglect the group of people that never get started because they won't acknowledge their victimhood. There are people who get stuck there. There are people who refuse to acknowledge it, whether it's because of their personality type. No, it's fine. It's fine. I'm okay. Like, don't worry about me or their conditioning that places such a heavy emphasis on, you know, upward trajectory, resilience, that they they are not allowed to say, hold on, I'm a victim. I'm talking about myself here. I'm just be honest. <laughs> like those people out there, <laughs> right. okay, it's me. I'm the friend I'm asking for, okay. right? Um, okay. uh, yeah, like, I'm the friend. So I do think that there, for me, I've noticed that there is such a difficult, there is a difficulty in naming your victimhood to begin with sometimes. Someone handed me a book once when I was going through a hard time and it was called Don't Forgive Too Soon. And I was like, what is this nonsense? Of course, we're supposed to forgive 
Um, and going through that book was life-changing because it was essentially saying, don't move through your victimhood too quickly here. There's really good work you need to do here by acknowledging and not bypassing the ways that you've been injured. So could could you speak to that for those people who just, they're having trouble even saying out loud for whatever reason, I I am a victim. Okay, so for one, I don't want anybody to ever feel like they have to apologize for being harmed and then not, you know, we can use victimhood in in so many different ways that I'm not saying that if a person is a victim of a trauma, that get up and get over it is the answer. That is not what what I'm trying to say at all. What I am trying to say is that we need to we need to be better at allowing people to own their harm, own their victim experience, right? It's not it's not that you're a victim. It's that an, that something happened to you that victimized you in the process or any but you know anyone, any one of us. I mean, many people have victim stories, mm-hmm. but it isn't who we are. It's what it's what happened. We we have to create language first because words matter and words are super important to inviting people into the conversation in the first place and being able to have conversations, which I think is happening more and more now in my generation in a lot of ways, you know, people were not allowed to talk about their their experiences of trauma, and and there was a lot of condescension about you know if you couldn't just get over it or just let it go, you know that phrase, right. just let it go. Now we're, we we want people to share, but we also have to provide the pathway we have to provide the tools and the first tool is the invitation to be with me and share with me and talk Mm. to me and Mm. trust me and know that i hold no judgment around what happened to a person a lot of terrible terrible things happen to people and i've sat with a lot of people and I've been in experiences where, you know, I'm on the I'm on the front line where terrible, terrible things have happened to people that I love and care about. And and in some ways, like I think that's the same thing about myself, you know? But but the first conversation is the inv- invitation to be with somebody, to have have a conversation and spend time with in order to move down the path in a healthy way. So the experience becomes an integrated part of their identity. By integrating an experience into our identity is a way of changing who we are, but growing in a healthy way. And the first step is having a conversation. Like we need to change the product. We need to, change the steps and create the first step was which is the invitation to invite people in to tell their story because we don't want to shame people for having the story we don't want to shame people period what we don't want people to get stuck in is the idea that you're only okay if you overcome yeah and that you have to be perfect yeah and I think that women, women in 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 some ways this happens across you know across genders, but in a lot of ways women have this messaging that they have to be perfect at everything. They have to be beautiful, and they have to be okay. Let's just lay out all the social messaging that is in mm-hmm. the cover of a Seventeen magazine. Yeah, they have to be great moms. Okay, well, if you've ever had two littles in your house at the same time and you could feel a little cuckoo birds and that's okay, like that's so normal. But if we say that- You are ungrateful. You know, then it's like, oh, I'm not the perfect mom. Or if, you know, 
there's so many, you don't keep the house perfectly or you don't make your kids make their bed. Who knows? Like there's all kinds of things that make people feel like they're Hmm. not good enough. And we do this to ourselves too, but it's because of the messaging out in the world that comes back to us and says, you have to be all of this and more in order to deserve love in order to deserve my accepting of you, you have to be all these things. And in reality, no, you don't. You could be unhoused on the street with a mental illness and that person deserves just as much love Mm -hmm. as any one of us Mm -hmm. who literally on purpose dropped litter on the ground. (laughs) Mm. Right. So people in, we need, I think, We need to start with recognizing that innately we lead with, I love you. I love you just because of who you are, just because of you, not who you are, just because of you. And then if you think about every baby coming into the world with that start and building, building their not random resilience, but their real true resilience from that space. I love you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to teach you coping skills because bad things will happen. But, Hmm. but you know what? It's okay. Cause I'm going to be here and we're going to cope together through this. And then we're going to problem solve and learn strategies about what about when it happens again, what could we do differently? Okay. These are all things that scientifically prove to build resilience. It's not random. And when somebody holds your hand through the beginning of your life and then sets you free, then guess what? You're going to be able to hold five people's hands Mm. the next time. And when something traumatic happens, the initial thought for me and I fight this a lot because, and I, this is, this is cultural age stuff, probably like, Oh, should I say anything? Will I sound like, you know, a bitch or whatever, <laughs> yeah. but even younger people, you know, Lindsay, your, your age struggle with like, ah, am I allowed to say something about this or not allowed to say something when when we change the rules that we are allowed to say the truth about a situation and get clarification, then we make it better for everyone. We model for children that, you know what, you don't need to keep that secret. It's okay. You don't need to protect somebody. If somebody hurts you, it's, it's not your job because you're the little, it's my job. I wish I could hug you, Lindsay. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. I don't think of victimhood. I don't like the hood on victim right. because it makes it seem like it's a forever thing. And I don't want it to be a forever thing. I want our harms to be integrated into who we are as strength. Hmm. Because bad things happen to us and they ultimately do and can with the right people make you stronger it doesn't take away the pain it doesn't make it okay i think Um, it's really important for a lot of people to hear that you can have resilience and you can develop those tools and you can still say in safe spaces i'm not over it i'm just not yeah it's okay they can coexist yeah absolutely i i think that's a beautiful thing to say is Lindsay, is that yes, they can not being over it or not even forgiving somebody is does not mean that something's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. That's, it, you know, the fact that something shouldn't happen because it was a choice says something about the thing that happened. We can still be compassionate and look back and say, okay. Something probably happened to that person and that made them make that terrible choice. Yeah. Separate issue. It's totally yeah. separate issue for me. 
because a lot of people are capable of making a different choice. So we're, we struggle with this, you know, unknowing need for consistency. (laughs) We want it to be the same for everyone. Yeah. And at the same time, every situation is different. And if I have any hope for the next generation, generations, it is that we get over the need for standardization of everything. Mm. And we begin to embrace the difference in, in so many things. And we hold on to some of the bigger concepts Mm. like community. Is this working for our community? Yes or no. If it's not, we get rid of it. If we have mental health policies in our community that are not helping, and I still see people unhoused struggling with mental illness and care on the street, it's not working. That's not working for my community, and we need to do something different about it. If children are do not have a loving adult whose job is to protect and keep them safe and teach them to cope and love them, we are not building our community and it, it it it's important to me whether I know who that child is or not, or their parent or anyone. That needs to be our our value system. Needs to be that we are fighting for people, not just our people. Yes, <sighs> say that again, please. <laughs> yes, that we are fighting for people, not just our people. It's not just about getting the goods for my family or my friends or my people. It's about, it's the simple concept of paying it forward for the good of everyone, for the good of the community. And we we can do this. We can do this because every time we do a little step in that direction, and if everybody does that little step, then guess what? Pretty soon by the next generation, it will never happen overnight, which is why leave a life print is my tagline is because life prints take an entire generation. It takes a lifetime and we will not necessarily see the fruits of our labor in our lifetime. And we have to be okay with that Hmm. because change takes time and we don't change. This is what drives me crazy about the whole concept of, you know, teaching people resilience. We don't teach adults resilience. It's already gone. We've already passed the window of critical period. Uh, yeah. And, and as much as we wish that were true, it's a lie. Resilience starts in childhood, early childhood, and it's built upon through childhood. And can we make some neuro tra- adaptations and learn some coping strategies? Sure, in adulthood, absolutely. We do have some neuroflexibility in our brain to change. However, nowhere near, we don't get anywhere near the bang for our buck when we make that investment at the front end of life. Yeah. And yet we spend 90% of our dollars, tax dollars and all dollars on adulthood. So so I, I'd love to I'd love to focus on that a little bit, Dr. B. So if you were President, which sounds nice. Let's. There's an election coming up. Does not sound. And you would uh, change the budget, right? Absolutely. How would you change the budget, and why? Why would you focus, you know, all that energy on childhood? Are we going to have a Doctor B for president? Like, because <laughs> because really, I don't want to be president. Not that anybody would vote for me, yeah. but. Um, Although they might over certain people. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You can get some votes, I'm sure. Yeah. If I were president, one, I would say, okay, let's use our money based on science. And if you understand that having an educated society is important, we need to use our money based on what we understand about science, the brain, and childhood, and the outcomes that we get for providing safety, nurturing, loving, care, and education. We know how to do this, and yet the school systems look exactly the same as they did 100 years ago. 
the college systems look very similar to what they did, you know, a hundred years ago. Sure. And so we need to change that and we need to make it easier to change that. I trust people like Mm. I have a lot of faith in that unhoused person. Yes, I give people on the street. I'll get shit for this, but I give people on the street change Mm -hmm. because you know what? All right. If you don't have access to medication to treat your depression and anxiety and you need a beer out of the liquor store to calm your nerves. Okay. I'm okay with that because you know what? I don't have medications to give you. And and if anybody's ever experienced a panic attack or anxiety to the level that I can only imagine being unhoused and scared and struggling with voices or hallucinations, mm. I think, okay, it's not my, I don't want to do it. It's mm-hmm. not my, it's not my, you know, first go-to. If I could walk them into a doctor and be sure that they were going to get the re just the things that they need in a loving way, that would be that would be my first choice. Yeah. Yeah. But I have no idea where that exists. Right. It doesn't exist. We need to make that exist. Yeah. And when we make that exist, then we won't have to give people then we won't have to make that very, very difficult decision that is my dollar that I just turned over to them gonna go to a needle or booze from the liquor store. We don't have. We won't have to make yeah. that decision. Along those lines, and and in especially in these extreme situations, I, yes, the the system. We need to adjust the system. We need to adjust our perspective on how how we view the people that are in those extreme situations, and how, what we can actually do. Right, and that's going to require some deep inner work on ourselves um, in order to do. We have the capacity to hold the tension and the uncomfortability of people in that situation and kind of tied to this is something i've been working through and i'd love for you to speak on this kind of a twofold thing of my frustration with sometimes in the self-help community there's this we we go in we do we talk about these deep things we go through some breathwork session or some yoga thing or some embodied practice thing. It's like, great, that's all the time we have today. Have a great week. And and we just leave people hanging. And and it, it, it rubs me terribly because it's like, this is not light work. And we're not aware of the consequences of, of jumping mm-hmm. into these really, really difficult things. It's not, it, it's become a hobby. Mm-hmm. And and I think I want to highlight that as if you on any level on any level using the enneagram or some sort of embodied practice or some sort of psychology or whatever like this, you need to treat this as a very very powerful tool. And I guess along those lines, when it comes to resilience. As you were saying, this is this is not by accident. Resilience does not happen by accident, but you can't just throw random stuff at it either, mm. right? And no. and so, how do we when when people just get stuck in the victimhood story where it becomes part of an identity, part of either it's a it's a way to bypass doing really painful, ugly, uncomfortable work. You don't have to stop at your trauma, and it's not just like. Getting rid of it means getting part rid of part of your story. You're actually by not going into it and through it and integrating it, you're missing part of the deep gift of the strength that comes from dealing with it. I'd like for you to share any sort of your experience with people that you've worked with um, and and just that process of of how do we develop resilience and how do we deeply respect? the people that are struggling, the people that are having a hard time knowing what the next step is. We can't always, like, it's not our job to know about everyone's resilience. It is our job to be committed to young, to little's resilience Mm. on every level, right? 
So whether there are children, our grandchildren, somebody else's children, their friends, other just in general children, I, I believe we all really have a, a very important responsibility to being committed to vulnerable populations, resilience, and needs getting met. So first things first, resilience is looks it, it it's the same thing and it happens all over the globe and we don't even necessarily look at it or talk about it with the same words we have to trust people first and foremost who are the helpers who are the carers who are the mental health providers and you know, when you say, Seth, like, you know, somebody comes into the office, you do some breath work, you do some this, you do some that, and then they're like, okay, see you in a week. And then they come back the next time and it's a different person. Okay, instant in my mind, I just say fail. <laughs> First of all, we have to only, we have to operationalize mental health care. The key word here is care in a way that literally takes care of and, and sacredly protects people's mental health. Because when we do take care of somebody's mental health, we are unknowingly or knowingly also taking care of that person's physical health. Mm -hmm. we, do, we do all kinds of things for people's physical health. As we can see it happening to you, you know, a harm happening to your body, we're all over that. We're going to stitch you up, put you in a cast, give you do surgery. We'll give you medication. We're going to take care of you physically. But in reality, most of the physical injuries that happen to people are caused by mental health struggles. So when we care for somebody's mental health, one, we do what we know we need to do. We say people are not interchangeable. If I'm your therapist, then I cannot disappear from you because the instant I disappear from my person, my client who's who has trusted me with the most sacred gift of their trauma, harm, cause of being a victim, they've handed me that package. If I don't take care of that package, guess what? I've just created another harm and probably a more profound harm than the initial harm. Mm. We're just pushing it down the road, mm -hmm. which is why we have such a mental health crisis in our world right now. So first and foremost, we have to know that people are not interchangeable. We are connected emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, the moment we we wrap our arms around each other, our hearts start to sink together. That tells yeah. us something about how humanity is so in in intensely connected because any one of us living alone on the planet would just disappear. It would be over. We can't live alone. We need to live in congruence with others. So first we have to take care of our caring system. We have to make it a humanity driven system, not a corporate management system. And we can do that and make money at the same time. It's not <laughs> a, it's not one or the other. We can do both. It's amazing, mm -hmm. but we just have to decide to do that. Now, I'm going to tell you a story about a person who I know when I went to Kenya Nairobi, Kenya, to learn more about extreme poverty because uh, I was, I, I've always wanted to go to Africa and I ended up going to learn about this community school in, I don't like the word slum, but it is the technical word in, in Kenya that they, they call this the third largest slum outside of Nairobi and it's called Haruma. And I went to a school there and I spent four days and in the process did home visits in this community, totally underdeveloped settlement in the outside of Nairobi, which is a beautiful urban city. But when you go into this community, you know, the sewer is running down the middle of the road. There, it's dirt. It, there's, it's just completely un, undeveloped and very and 
in some ways very unsafe and then in some ways very safe because why because the community the people have to protect each other in order to survive and so they end up doing this in ways that are very beautiful so i met this person and this is that station in life thing you know where you're born and and what you are born opportunities that are in front of you can make or break your life trajectory. So I met Josephine. And in Kenya, you walk down the street, women and everybody holds hands. And it's very, you know, it's a safety thing. And I was like, okay. And I felt very safe because everybody had my hand at all times (laughs) as we went places. Josephine, as we were walking back to the school, I said, have you ever thought of getting an advanced degree? I didn't realize how I didn't know people from other countries had to pay international fees. I should have known that as a college professor, but I didn't really register. And she's like, that's my dream. My dream is to get a master's degree. And I thought, "Okay, well, I live in a I live in a town with a university where why don't you just apply to school at where I went to school and you know, we'll do a GoFundMe and it'll be no big deal. Okay, well, it turned out to be a really, really big deal. (laughs) We opened up her dream, not knowing if we could, if if that dream could be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, Josephine graduated this week from the university and got a master's degree, which is phenomenal. It took a village of people here. It took a village of people in Kenya. It took people everywhere to make that happen, but it could have not happened. There were so many times we had a plane ticket purchase. All she had to do was get through her visa visa interview. And guess what? She was denied her visa two times. The, only, the, the reason she was able to go to school was because of COVID in some ways, but the cost of an education at a state university in California for an international student is astronomical. Somehow we were able to raise the money and because she was virtual, it ended up, we were, we were able to do it. But this changes the trajectory of Josephine's life, but not only Josephine's life, her children's lives. Every child who knows Josephine's life is changed by Josephine getting a master's degree and living in an area where people live on less than $1 a day. I mean, can you imagine this? I challenge everybody in listening to, to try to go through one day on $1, a normal day. A random day, not a day that you pick that you're going to stay home and sleep all day, but a <laughs> random day because this is this is amazing. The difference between Josephine and I, it the difference is that I was born in America. I have white skin. I had a brother who is one year older than me and a sister who's older than me who fueled some of my resilience as a child. So. However, Josephine is a black woman in a developing country and a slum. So her opportunities and accessibility to higher education are zero to none. And but then this, you know, this kookaburd white lady shows up in her community one day and is like, oh yeah, I'm sure that that's we could do that. I knew she was smart enough. There was it, it had nothing to do with intelligence. She's more resilient coming from a very, very difficult environment that she was born into, right? Mm-hmm. Then potentially somebody who is born with lots of opportunity, but has zero resilience because it was not attended to early on. So we have a person, I'll just use a serial killer, Ted Bundy, who I would say has zero resilience. In theory, a high opportunity to be very successful and Mm -hmm. have lots of access and opportunity. Right. And yet, so we have to dig deep. We have to look below the surface and figure out We can ask ourselves the question, why didn't Ted Bundy have resilience? Okay, let's look at his childhood. Let's start there. Mm. It's so um, cliche, 
but it's very real. There's a reason that babies are born with literally two thirds of their brain waiting to be wired to the environment they live in. So Josephine landed in her environment and wired up with a lot of skills and strategies and abilities to navigate her community, where if we were to plop somebody, even me alone in her community, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't know how to survive there, right? I don't know how to live on $1 a day. Mm -hmm. So we need each other in order to survive at the very basic at the very basics, we need each other to survive. And so we are neurobiologically built for survival, which means we have to wire up our emotional regulating systems to other people and connect. Mm-hmm. And when I say connect, that means love and friendship and engage with and communicate with other people. We're doing it backwards. Mm. Mm. What I'm what I'm hearing in, in this story is yeah, we're all we all come into the world and have a predisposition in an environment that either helps us or or holds us back in some way, but it's not very clear as to where those boundaries are necessarily. Like in Josephine's situation, like I think most people would assume like she would not have great resilience and support, but in fact, she does. And I think that alone is a message to all of us, I mean, that are very privileged in the US, right? Is resilience to overcome your trauma, overcome your difficulties is available and there are ways to do that. And not only are you kind of trapping yourself by staying in a storyline of victimhood, but you're also, again, you're missing out on some beautiful gifts that come from from working into that trauma and, and emerging with another level of strength and resilience and wisdom and depth and understanding of how complicated and hard life can be. And I just, that's what I'm hearing in your story. And I guess to, to quickly kind of tie up this episode, um, I'm curious if you could, practically speaking, like maybe one thing that people can do for themselves to help cultivate resilience. And then what... We as, we as mental health professionals or um, people that are coaching or self-help, like what, what's the one thing that we can do with our clients that, that challenges them just enough to, for them to glimpse the other side of, of integrating that story of trauma? Okay, so I'm going to start with the mental health field and people in the mental health coaching field of help, you know, the helpers. I like to call them the carers and the helpers. First and foremost, we have to make a commitment to ourselves and to the people that we are trying to care for and help. We have to make a commitment to them in terms of time and consistency. Mm -hmm. It comes down, it's as simple as that. You know, I want it to be more flowery and woo-woo, but it's exactly the same thing a baby Mm -hmm. needs when they enter the enter the world is consistency, predictability, protection. And the person who's coming to us with trauma or a victim story needs the same thing. Mm-hmm. And if we change it up on them all the time, mm-hmm. we've just cre- we've just contributed to the to the trauma. We're not helpers and we're not carers. If I was going to activate Josephine's resilience, I had to be involved in the story from day one to the end, Mm. to the forever part of the story. It was a lifetime commitment. It took a commitment of our personhood. I'm going to stay here and be with you. And we WhatsApp in the middle of the night or early in the morning because we're 11 hours apart. And she's going to remain the student until she graduates. And now she's a professional and hopefully we're going to work together. If either one of the people in that story changed, the story would have collapsed. So we have to keep the people in the story the same because people are not interchangeable. The second thing is, what can we do in ourselves? We can hear that message about the carers for us and then have that expectation 
to hold all people out there accountable to us. I deserve for somebody to be there for me. And if that person, therapist, medical doctor, I don't know, boss, somebody, if they partner, a friend, if they can't hold up their part, their half for our own strength and resilience, we need to set that boundary of, of consistency or care. And that doesn't mean we don't let people, you know, make mistakes here and there occasionally, but if they're continuously pulling us down because they're not, they're not reliable in their care for us, then it's okay to say, I need more. I need more. And that feels, especially Lindsay, you'll get this, like as women saying, I need more from you. And I have an expectation that you're going to actually provide more for me is very difficult. It almost seems like you're not allowed to say that, but you know what? Yeah, you, you are, you do, you deserve more. You can expect more. And I want to, I want to frame it in this way. And I say, what do I want my children to expect from other people? One of my, I'm going to end with this, my Shiro story, Emmy Werner, who, who did the original longitudinal study on resilience. She said, live well, play well, love well, and expect well of others for you. That means I want people to be, I want my children, I want my children and especially my girls, my daughter and my granddaughter and all girls in the world to, to expect well of people, make them be good people for you. Mm. Because when, when, when they do that, guess what? We're all better. We're all better people and men are better people too. And when we teach men to be that for women or for each other as friends or brothers or absolutely whatever, yeah. everybody is better. Mm. But we're it's very taboo to say, be good for me. But if you're good for me, then guess what? I'm gonna be so I can be good for you too. Like we make a commitment to being the best we can be for somebody else, but we also have to expect that people will be the best for us. And if they're not then unfortunately, and it's okay to let go. Mm -hmm. It's a, or take a break. Let's just say, take a break mm -hmm. from that. And when insurance companies decide they're going to cover your therapist for this year and not for this year, you know, I mean, we're, there, yep. it, it goes right back to those systemic issues you mentioned before. And again, we have to expect from our insurance companies yeah. and from our politicians and from our mental health providers or systems of care that we're not going to do it that way. Yeah. Like we are the client. We are the payee. They do get their money from us because if we didn't exist, they wouldn't get their money. So mm -hmm. it, it's difficult to do. It's very scary to do as an individual, but it's important to do as groups of people because we have to change these systemic problems of operationalizing mental health in a way that matches science and outcomes. Mm -hmm. We know how to do it. Resilience is not random. Yeah. And resilience, if all we had was a resilient world, oh, okay, we just would have a pretty amazing world. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know what I'm going to say next is Kristen Beasley for president. <laughs> I think Thank you. I think this needs to yeah. be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very sweet of you, except you, I have really big feelings and I get my feelings hurt really easily. So I think like the first time somebody said a mean thing to me, I would cry. <laughs> the <laughs> first tabloid you see at the supermarket. Yes. <laughs> is me bawling my head off. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Gosh, I have just absolutely yeah. <laughs> so enjoyed meeting you and talking with you. And you have been such a healing presence for me in a way that I really was was not oh. expecting, but very, very pleasantly surprised. So thank you so much for being here today. And thank you. Really, really looking forward to um to talking again in the future. But until then, how can our listeners find you and stay awesome. up with your presidential campaign? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's neat. Well, 
okay, I don't know how, how do my listeners find me at <laughs> www.drbconnections.com? Yeah, we'll Post put stuff the, in the show yeah, notes. We'll, if therapists, coaches, anybody in the mental health field would like to learn more about one, trauma-informed care and resilience certification, you can go to my website and, and log into the academy, which is the Leave a Life Print Academy. And there are three modules of three levels of trauma-informed care and resilience training that come with certification and CEUs. So that's one place where people can really start to baseline and understand on a very deep level the impact of trauma and resilience on people's lives. And that helps us then to start to operationalize things in our in our work, in our families, in our communities. Uh, again, Dr. B, thank you so much. I know I was deeply affected um, as, as Lindsay was and Drew was as well, shed a few tears on my end. And so thank you for just being the wonderful you, the wise the wise leader that you are. And, you um, guys are so nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not hard. It's really not. Um, so thank you again. And um, <laughs> listener, please uh, go listen back to our previous episode with her. It actually ties in really, really well to this episode as well when we're talking about stories of resilience. And uh, we love you, listener, and um, you got this. You're going to be okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you discovering our inner depths one fathom at a time. TruthWork Media Studios.